0: They called it the Battle of the Sexes, though to many it resembled a circus, an event staged in Houston in the 70s that reverberates even today on this edition of the Texas Standard.
1: Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio, with support from Rand Group. Software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm
0: David Brown. The decision stands. The Supreme Court refuses to intervene in a lower court ruling that may force political nonprofits to reveal major donors, what it might mean for the midterms. Beyond all the talk of trade wars, tariffs now hitting Texans down on the farm. And you didn't rent the movie. You bought it online. But you might not be able to keep it. How the digital age is redefining what's yours and what might not be. All that and much more today on the Texas Standard. No matter where you are, you're on Texas Standard Time on this almost a Friday. We call it Thursday around these parts, and we're awfully glad you're spending a bit of it with us. I'm David Brown. What's making news? Well, for starters, a tragic anniversary in Puerto Rico. When Hurricane Maria struck there on this day last year, many Texans were still busy mucking through the aftermath of our own hurricane disaster, a certain storm named Harvey. One year on from Maria, many homes in Puerto Rico remain in ruins. More of a reflection coming up later in our broadcast. There's a Texan who's been in the news of late for his efforts to distribute 3D printer plans for plastic pistols. Well, now he's making national headlines for a completely different reason. Police in Cody Wilson's hometown of Austin say they are working with international authorities to bring Wilson back from Taiwan to face a sexual assault charge filed just yesterday. We'll learn more about that case later in the news roundup. But the story much of the Lone Star State is still buzzing about is the political surprise from Tuesday in a Texas Senate district held by Democrats for 139 years and one that Hillary Clinton won by 12 points in 2016. Voters in a special election to fill a vacated seat this week elected a Republican, an historic choice for another reason too. Pete Flores becomes the first Hispanic Republican ever elected to the state Senate. But the outcome's important in another more obvious way. Prior to Tuesday, much of the political conversation is centered on 2018 being a big year for Democrats in Texas and nationwide, electrified and mobilized by the Trump presidency, ready to overthrow the status quo. Now, some Texas Democrats fear their hoped-for blue wave could become an unexpected red tide in an already mostly Republican-led state. That's the more obvious dimension. But as Ryan Poppy of Texas Public Radio explains, this could have more lasting repercussions for politics statewide as the GOP moves one big step closer to retaining something it feared it might
2: lose, a supermajority at the Capitol. Prior to 2015, conservative legislation needed support from two-thirds of the Senate for a bill to be considered for a vote. But then, Lt. Gov. Dan Patrick and 20 Senate Republicans lowered the threshold to three-fifths of the Senate. David Crockett, who teaches political science at Trinity University in San Antonio, says that supermajority ensures Patrick controls the Senate's agenda. You need a supermajority to override a veto or to stop a filibuster or to do the kinds of things that take more than simply, in the Texas Senate, more than simply uh, 16 votes. Now that Pete Flores has won the seat for District 19, the lieutenant governor can add one more Republican vote to his arsenal. And Patrick says the Flores' victory says two things about the political landscape for Texas Republicans. First of all, look at this turnout. It was a high turnout for both sides. So people are engaged. The other thing it says, this now gives us a two-thirds majority. This is a forerunner, a precursor of what's to come. But the situation isn't perfect. Political experts consider three Republican Senate districts in Fort Worth, Dallas, and Houston to be in play this election cycle. So that's why Patrick made large in-kind donations and campaigned for Flores in District 19 special election. That Republican victory, Crockett explains, was crucial. If the state moves in a more purple toward a blue direction, then there, of course, is an interest by the lieutenant governor to try to secure a supermajority and maintain that control because things don't stay the same in politics. It's not static. It's very dynamic. Crockett says the results of special elections like District 19 or the races that will be decided in November should no longer be considered just local or regional races. They are all part of a larger statewide political chessboard, and every move matters. In Austin, I'm Ryan Poppy.
0: Political nonprofits will have to reveal some of their major donors after the Supreme Court on Tuesday declined to intervene with a federal judge's earlier ruling. Back in August of this year, District Court Judge Beryl Howell of D.C. threw out a decades old Federal Election Commission regulation, which allowed nonprofit groups to keep their donors secret, unless they had earmarked the money for specific purposes. So what does this change mean, especially given that the midterms are only weeks away? To explore, we're joined by Michelle Yehi-Lee, who covers money and influence in politics for The Washington Post. Michelle, thanks so much for speaking with us on The Standard.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, some advocacy groups uh, that have called for getting what they call dark money out of politics are calling this a victory for transparency, but others say it could have a chilling effect on fundraising. Could you explain those two sides here for us?
3: Sure. So this throws out a long-standing rule that some of the the advocates who want to get rid of dark money in politics have said created a loophole for these nonprofits and fundraising. Um, So what they say is that because of this regulation, some of these nonprofits were able to fundraise money that paid for their political activity. But unless you specifically earmarked it for political purposes, You didn't have to report it. And now this regulation is gone. So it's kind of, uh, it's a wild, wild west right now. And everyone's kind of scrambling to figure out what this exactly means. But in the meantime, because this would lead to more transparency than there was before, the advocates who want to get rid of dark money are very much welcoming it
0: uh what about the chilling effect on fundraising what's the what's the theory there that people will not big big donors will not donate to these groups in the future
3: right that the the theory is that because the rules are not clear anymore there's not a regulation guiding them that these political nonprofits don't know exactly what they're supposed to be saying when they raise money from these big donors what they can tell them the money is going to be used for. The rules under which they used to act before, they're just not there anymore. So they're worried that the donors are going to... spook and not give money because they don't want to be revealed. Whereas in the past they had assurances that they were not going to be re- revealed. And in fact, it's not, a it's not that out of uh, left field to talk about this because some of the politically active nonprofits that I've talked to have said that they've already been changing their fundraising activity, moving, um, some of the activity over to an affiliated super PAC mm-hmm. where the donors are, Revealed, and so donors are already having to um, adjust their activity a little bit and think about the ramifications of their name being revealed now. Whereas in the past they weren't. I want to make sure it's already pretty out altering behavior.
0: I want to forgive me for interrupting, but I want to make sure that we understand what we're talking about here when we talk about political nonprofits. Could you give us an example of maybe one or two from the right and one or two from the left, so we have a sense of sort of what we're talking about here?
3: Sure. These are nonprofits where. As long as politics or political activity does not go over 50% of what you do, you can stay as a nonprofit and you don't have to register as a super PAC or as a political committee. So on the left, uh, the League of Conservation Voters is a politically active nonprofit. Um, the Planned Parenthood Action Fund is a politically active nonprofit, and the, these both of these groups have an affiliated super PAC where the donors are revealed, and the super PAC can do everything that's political activity. There's no limit, as, and that's why you have to reveal your donors. On the right, it's Americans for Prosperity, which is a Koch-backed political um, group. That is a politically active nonprofit. They also have an affiliated super PAC um, named Americans for Prosperity Action. Um, on the right, there's also NRAILA, which is the legislative and political um, arm of the NRA. And that arm is a politically active super uh, nonprofit. So those are some examples. And these are huge players on the left and the right. And it affects everybody.
0: Well, I, but will it affect the midterms? I mean, there is a certain process in rulemaking. You talk about the Wild West now existing, and presumably the FEC, the Federal Elections Commission, will now have to take action, but making a rule takes time, uh, typically. So uh, what does this mean for the midterms?
3: It could mean that these groups have to reveal their donors as early as October 15th, which is the next quarterly filing deadline with the FEC for these groups. In the past, they would file um, these filings by the quarterly deadline, but they didn't have to reveal their donors. And we'll have to see in the next filing if this takes effect as quickly as that. The FEC now is coming up with some sort of guidelines to help politically active nonprofits know what what they should be following and kind of things that they should be thinking about as their fundraising in lieu of having a regulation, a new regulation, because a regulation takes time. It'll take months to draft. It'll take more months to have a public comment period. So it'll take a long time for an actual regulation to be in place. But in the meantime, the judge's ruling from a month ago, a month and a half ago, throwing out this rule is effective as of Tuesday. So right now, there is no rule, which means that these uh, nonprofits have to disclose some of their donors. And it could be as early as October 15th that we start seeing some of the donor names come through.
0: Michelle Yehi-Lee is a reporter for The Washington Post. Michelle, thanks so much for speaking with us on The Standard. Thank you so much. Back in the studio with us on this Thursday, it's our
4: social media editor, Wells Dunbar. Hi there, Wells. Hi, David. Well, sticking with elections a moment longer, an eye-opening study from the Washington Post has politics watchers talking Texas is dead last in the nation when it comes to voter turnout in midterm elections. Somehow I'm not surprised Yeah, not by the that. most surprising news, but uh, revealing to see it presented as yeah, such. Right. Parsing the data, it shows that only 28% of Texas voters turned out during the last midterms. Lots of folks ticked off on twitter mark wiggins tweets as an actual text and the idea that we'd be dead last in anything makes my blood boil oh they lie tweets we have let the future generations down by allowing the current class of jokers to represent us now we are better than this and the wits end tweets that texas democrats independents and republicans sick of the state of this country we need to take advantage of uh, this news and shake off our perceived complacency. You know, speaking of the midterms, David, yes, I sir. know a lot of listeners are going to be watching or listening to the Senate debate between Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke tomorrow. I, yeah, absolutely. I yeah. Can bring some pizza. And, sit there <laughs> yeah, and Watch it. Exactly. Yeah, I know. I'm going to be uh, watching it, and public radio reporters across Texas will be tweeting too, and we will be using the hashtag #TXDecides so our listeners as well can also join in on this, oh, this virtual debate watch party by using it too that's the hashtag tx decides which we will be using for the debate tomorrow night and yeah should be an interesting one definitely and to put it mildly i would think yeah uh hashtag tx decide tx decides. uh hey are you going to be watching the debate i would be very
0: interested in hearing uh whether or not this is going to be something that you will be tuning into tweet us won't you at texas standard join the conversation on facebook wells dunbar is looking for you and he's back in 35
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology with a reminder that September is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. Screening can lead to early detection. Men age 50 and older are advised to discuss screening with their physicians. More at TexasOncology.com.
0: Business and your money on the standard. I'm David Brown. How are you going to keep them down on the farm if they can't afford to stay there? Earlier this month, farmers began receiving aid relief from tariffs, but that doesn't close the gap for many Texas farmers. And as KWBU's Will Burney reports, this is already having ripple effects.
5: Just off I-35 in Waco is Tipton International. It's an agricultural dealership that sells all types of heavy equipment. Matthew Walker, the general manager, says he's already seeing a drop in revenue of about 10 to 20% due to drought and tariffs. It's caused a lot of farmers to receive aid from the federal government. They're just doing what, they're in survival mode right now. They're doing what they can to survive. And tariffs have also hit Tipton International as well. Still surcharges is is taking
0: a big hit on our equipment. We've had a lot of price increases over you know the past six months, which has caused equipment prices to go up substantial.
5: Luis Rivera is an agricultural economist at A and M University. He says farm income's been in steady decline for several years now, and when it comes to tariffs, the damage is already being done in the industry. Just the talk of having tariffs. That adds a lot of
6: uncertainty to the market because the prices, the prices react to news, to information.
5: Ribera says that farmers are usually pretty optimistic, but they've been facing some pretty tough situations.
6: They always think next year is going to be a better price. They think next year is going to be higher yield. When you have low prices, you know, for several years, that's going to erode your, your, your savings, erode your, your, your profits. And then, you know, you're going to wait a little bit longer to purchase or replace your tractor or replace your combine or or whatever it is that you need.
5: Farmers are likely to wait until all the talk with NAFTA and the uncertainty with China is resolved before making any big purchasing decisions for things like large, heavy equipment. Dealerships, on the other hand, like Tipton International, have ways to weather these kinds of storms. Here's Walker again.
6: You have to be
0: uh, diversified in what you do as far as, as being in an ag dealership. You can't just focus on one aspect of the business, whether it be
6: large farm, construction, things like that.
5: And Tipton International is pretty diversified. While commodity and cattle prices are down, they've been able to supplement selling replacement parts and by selling construction equipment. Gene Hall of the Texas Farm Bureau says there's an important difference between farmers and their suppliers. Farmers are price takers, not price setters. In our pricing system, you've got only a few buyers and a whole bunch of sellers. If Farmer Brown doesn't want to sell his corn to me, then I go down the road a piece and and talk to Farmer Green, and he will. And if a farmer's tools or equipment cost more, they'll have no choice but to pay that increase in cost. And that triggers economic decisions right on down the line. Uh, What do I tell my banker? Uh, Can I refinance my loan? Can I just pay the interest this year? Or, sadly... At the end of the year or the end of next year, do I stay in business or not? There may be a number of factors beyond tariffs that trigger these questions, but they'll certainly play a factor as suppliers increase prices and commodities remain suppressed. In Waco, I'm Will Burney.
1: Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at worksafetexas.com.
0: And you were listening to the Texas Standard. Last week, a customer complaint against Apple went viral. Turns out some movies the user had purchased and downloaded from iTunes were suddenly missing from his account. So he took to Twitter, of course, to share both his complaint and what he considered to be a rather unsatisfying answer from Apple. Well, it turns out the movies weren't really just missing. Our tech expert, Omar Gayaga tells us it can be a bit tricky knowing just what's really yours when you think you're buying movies and music and the like in this era of digital downloads. Hey there, Omar. Hey, David. How's it going? It's going pretty well, but I can imagine uh, this fellow's feeling pretty uh, sick over these um, missing movies. What happened to this iTunes user's movies?
7: Well, he, he posted on Twitter, and it got a lot of attention because, you know, a, a lot of us that buy movies online or, or buy music or whatever, we, we think we own them. We think we, we're going to be able to keep them for a long time. Uh, it turns out, according to the terms of service, that that was not the case in his situation, and Apple offered a few movie rentals, like, hey, you know, you lost these three movies that you bought, but here's a couple of rentals we're going to throw to you, and that was very unsatisfying. It turns out, though, that the twist was he had moved from Australia to Canada, and so there was a region issue as well. So that's... Oh. The movies that were available where he used to live were not available where he lived now, and that was another complication. And I think the, I think Apple did get it resolved for him, but it uh-huh. raised the question for the rest of us of, well, what about my movies? What happens if you know a studio pulls the movies and I can't download them again? And and to be clear what Apple was saying was not uh, you don't own them if you've downloaded Mm -hmm. them. It was just you can't download them again if they're not available. I see. Yeah,
0: I totally understand that because of regional restrictions on the distribution of movies. I I totally get that. But, you know, when you have that download come in, there is the impression because you are being asked, do you want to buy? You want to rent in many cases, right? And, And you make the choice to buy not so you can rent for a longer period of time, but because there's this notion of possession you see the file in your folder there it is it's mine and i will put it on my hard drive and keep it forever
7: yeah and and you know and to be fair to apple i mean they have lifted a lot of the restrictions that used to exist it used to be when you bought a movie okay you can only watch it on these number of devices you can Mm -hmm. only do this and now they've kind of spread that out to where okay you can watch it on your apple tv you can watch it over here over there uh, on whatever device you have but there are still the restrictions of well what happens if it's not available and i and i don't have it downloaded what happens if i can't find it in the itunes store what do i do and usually the answer is you can't really do much of anything except repurchase it or have apple somehow get it to you but uh you know and that goes for music apps i mean i had another issue with apps uh, that where an app becomes unusable on mm-hmm. a new version of iOS right. or a, a new software. So what happens then? If the developer doesn't support uh, an update on the app and Apple's new versions don't support the app, right. you've basically lost this thing that you purchased. Do you
0: remember back when Apple went to more HD-style music files? They, they made a big deal out of it. They said anyone who purchased an Apple uh, a piece of music would have that piece of music replaced with the new higher-quality format. Uh, I lost a ton of music um, because, in fact, it was just private recordings that I owned because Apple, uh, using its uh, uh, mechanism for reaching into your account, deleted files that it thought were files that I had purchased. Have you heard that sort of thing happening?
7: Oh, I had a whole my whole library messed up when when they did iTunes Match. Oh, my, my entire Apple library was completely screwed up. Uh, so you know, Apple giveth and Apple taketh away. I mean, sometimes they try to do something to improve the user experience, uh-huh. and and they end up you know they end up being hidden consequences. They just recently did a thing where uh, they converted a lot of these movies to 4K. So if you had already bought a movie mm-hmm. in HD and mm-hmm. there was a 4K version available, you got that for free. Right. That's wonderful. Uh, but sometimes when they do these things, there can be hidden consequences. And, and like I said, my most recent experience was with what I call Aperot, which is... You know, when when the apps just stop working and you can't re-download them because they're no longer working on the new OS and you've lost it forever pretty much unless you go back to an older version of iOS.
0: we're, We're out of time. We're almost out of time. But any tips for keeping digital products you think you're buying safe or understanding what it is you're actually buying without having to read through the legalese?
7: Really, the key is download the things that you buy. I mean, don't wait until you need them to stream them or or to grab them. I mean, get them when you purchase them, especially if it's something that you don't ever want Uh to lose. Even if you have to back it up to an external hard drive or some other device, get it downloaded and have it. Don't
0: rely on the cloud is what uh, Omar seems (laughs) to be saying here. Omar is our go-to tech guru. Where do folks find you online, Omar?
7: Uh, I've got a bunch of audio clips at com, so find them there. We'll see you next week. Thank you, David. Coming up on 29 minutes
0: past the hour, Texas Standard Time. Texas Roundup is just around the corner. You know what to do. Stick around, won't you?
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where Hornfrog Frog faculty strive to be a force for the greater good. Like Professor of Education Michelle Bommel, whose I Engage Camp helps prepare middle schoolers to be engaged citizens. TCU, lead on.
8: From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. Officials in Taiwan say they are looking for the head of a Texas company who's attracted attention for making blueprints for 3D printable guns available to the public. Cody Wilson has been charged with sexual assault. Austin police say the victim is a 16-year-old girl whose initial contact with Wilson was through the website sugardaddymeat.com. Wilson's last known location was Taipei. Austin police commander Troy Officer said Wednesday Wilson did not take his schedule flight back to the U.S.
2: My detectives have interviewed and spoke with this victim, and in their opinion, if
6: someone uh, mistakes her age, it would be because they think she's younger, not
2: older, than the 16-year-old that she is.
8: If convicted, Wilson faces a sentence of two to 20 years in prison and a $10,000 fine. Child welfare and mental health advocates gave feedback on the proposed budget from the Texas Health and Human Services Commission at a hearing yesterday. The state agency is one of many presenting funding requests to members of the Legislative Budget Board for the years 2020 and 2021 ahead of next year's legislative session. HHSC administers more than 200 programs throughout the state, and its two-year operating budget is more than $70 billion. Josette Saxton with the advocacy group Texans Care for Children said she wants to see more resources dedicated to youth suicide prevention. She says in Texas, about one in eight high school students have attempted suicide. So if we have more of a focus on how can we better address youth suicide um, in schools, we will help not only with children's mental health, but also some school safety issues. According to figures the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released earlier this year, seven percent of high school students nationwide attempted suicide in 2017. In Texas, it was 12 percent. Ivanka Trump will be in Houston today touring NASA's Johnson Space Center. Houston Public Media's Allison Lee has the details.
3: Presidential advisor Ivanka Trump will be touring the center this afternoon with NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine and Senator Ted Cruz. The first daughter will reportedly talk to crew members on the International Space Station and speak with high school students who are working with NASA engineers to build a robot for a competition. Vice President Mike Pence was at the Johnson Space Center last month. The number of people
8: staying at Airbnbs in rural Texas has jumped more than 90% over the last year. That's according to a new report from the short-term rental company. In far west Texas, Presidio and Brewster County saw nearly 30,000 guests from August 2017 to August 2018. Ben Bright is with Airbnb.
6: We're talking about two counties that aren't just the top performers for the technically rural counties. They're, they're two of the most popular counties for Airbnb guests throughout Texas period.
8: Together, the two counties brought in more than $3 million in the last year. Some critics have said the high number of short-term rentals in towns like Marfa have contributed to the lack of available housing. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogle for the Texas Standard.
9: I'm Betsy Blaney. And I'm a radio producer at KTTZ. FM in Lubbock, Texas. Prior to that, I was a print journalist with the Associated Press for 16 years out here in West Texas. And previous to that, I was a professional tennis player. I was a lines person at the Battle of the Sexes between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs. So I had moved down to Dallas, Texas in August of 1972, right after high school, to work at the tennis club and teach tennis for the man who had taught me tennis up in Wisconsin. It sort of came out of the blue. I was in the pro shop at Brookhaven Tennis Club. And my boss came up to me and asked me what I was doing Thursday night. And I told him I had made plans with friends to just watch the match on TV. And he said, well, how would you like to call lines on the match? And I was like, yeah, sure. That sounds like great fun.
6: Following is an exclusive presentation of ABC Sports, live from the Astrodome in Houston, Texas. The tennis battle of the sexes Billie Jean King versus Bobby
9: Riggs. The atmosphere leading up to the match, actually inside the Astrodome, was sort of like a circus atmosphere. There were, you know, celebrities sitting in courtside seats, and there were You know, a mass of people sitting in one corner of the Astrodome where the tennis court was set up. And there were signs being held by men, you know, I am a male chauvinist pig.
6: What a scene it is, the Houston Astrodome, where up till now they've played almost every sport in the world except tennis.
9: Both of them were carried in on these Egyptian Egyptian litter type things with Bobby Riggs decked out in a sugar daddy yellow jacket and I just sort of took my seat on the single sideline and sort of watched it all unfold around me. It's
6: hard to believe but probably more than 30,000 people are in this arena for an all-time record tennis audience anywhere in the world.
9: I can't remember when during the match it happened but at one point Because I called the single sideline, that meant I also called the sideline for the service box. And Bobby Riggs was at the opposite end of the court, and he served a ball that moved from my left to my right, and it landed close to the right-hand side of the service box. Billy Jean, in moving to hit the ball, blocked my vision of the ball striking the court so I could not make a call whether it was in or out. I covered my eyes, which is a signal to the chair umpire that I could not make a call and that he should make a call. He made no call. And they went on and played the point, which Billie Jean eventually won. And she came back around towards me near the baseline and said, that ball was out. In conversation with her 25 years later, inside the Astrodome, she said that I should have stood up for myself, to which I responded, not in front of millions of people. (laughs) I wouldn't do that. I remember it being the first time that men and women were talking about women's sports together. You know, she created a field of possibility for young girls to follow their dreams. You know, when I was 10 years old, I knew I wanted to be a professional tennis player, but there were not avenues in place at that time where that was possible. And I watched through the years as Billie Jean kept pushing the envelope to create opportunities for young girls to have competitive arenas that they had for a long time been denied. I'm Betsy Blaney and you're listening to The Texas Standard.
0: Yes, it was on this day back in 1973 that Billie Jean King defeated Bobby Riggs in just three sets. In what is often referred to as the Battle of the Sexes, King's victory is considered certainly a milestone in women's tennis. But also an unmistakable signal of change lobbed at chauvinists everywhere. Coming up on 39 minutes past the hour.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at softwareaspromised.com. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org.
10: You're listening to The Texas Standard. I'm Marika Flatt, travel editor with Texas Lifestyle Magazine, here with your weekend trip tip. Fort Worth has a deep Western legacy, and it's unveiled plans to highlight more of that legacy through its renovation of the historic horse and mule barns in the iconic stockyards. Also coming are improvements to the stockyards' Exchange Avenue, and a new four-star boutique hotel, event barn and rustic resort. Here's a look at what's coming to Mule Alley. The chef that's best known for his popular truck yard restaurants in Dallas and Houston and the Twisted Root restaurants is opening second rodeo brewing company. It's described as a brew pub meets live music hall concept, brewing signature beer on site alongside a creative street taco menu and live music. Mule Alley will also feature a new restaurant from the executive chef and owner of Fort Worth's beloved Clay Pigeon. The Stockyards restaurant will focus on grilled and smoked meats. The space will feature an open kitchen with wood-burning grills and rotisserie smokers. A new shopping experience is also on its way to Mule Alley. MB Mercantile is an elevated interpretation of the earliest general stores. It's a -a one-of-a-kind Emporium concept of carefully curated, one-of-a-kind goods from artisans across Texas and beyond. The new headquarters of RFD-TV, the Cowboy Channel, and Rural Radio occupy a freestanding building on Exchange Avenue. Coming soon is a brand new broadcast studio that will be open to the public and will emphasize programming centered on the cowboy and cowgirl lifestyle. Developers hope this renovation of the Fort Worth Stockyards will bring renewed energy and a unique sense of place that reimagines what a historic district and thriving market street can be. That's your weekend trip tip. I'm Marika Flatt for the Texas Standard.
0: Marika Flatt is travel editor with Texas Lifestyle Magazine. You can find more weekend trip tips at texasstandard.org. A year ago today, Hurricane Maria devastated Puerto Rico. And the recovery efforts have been, well, despacito, slow to say the least. But Puerto Rico has a long history of resilience, often expressed through music and dance. So today, instead of recapping everything you already know about what went wrong after the hurricane, the Texas Standard's Joy Diaz decided to pay homage to the island's long heritage of artistry.
11: The first time I went to my father's native Puerto Rico, I was a child. Three things stayed with me from that visit. The beauty of the island, the crazy traffic congestions of the 1980s, and how people sang and danced everywhere. In 2015, I went again as a grown-up. The island was still beautiful, but the economic crisis had made many migrate inland, and Puerto Rico felt empty but those who remained were still dancing and singing. (laughs) Back in the 1500s, the Spanish conquistadors also found it interesting that Puerto Ricans did everything through song and dance. Fray Bartolomé de Las Casas wrote about it. He said it was, quote, fascinating that people dealt with everything from ancient matters to the law, to, quote, childish things, with, as he said, rhythmic voices and dance. Today, it is the same way. Both Puerto Ricans from the island and Puerto Ricans from the diaspora continue with the tradition. I can think of Bruno Mars' almost childish friendship song, Count on Me. You can count on me like one, two. can think of Lin Manuel Miranda's retelling of historic events in Broadway's Hamilton.
7: How does a ragtag volunteer army in need of a shower somehow defeat a global superpower? How do we emerge the
11: list of famous Puerto Ricans is long and diverse? From Rita Moreno, the Emmy, Grammy, Oscar and Tony Award-winning actress of the iconic West Side Story to Benicio del Toro and Joaquin Phoenix. When the Huffington Post created a list of famous Puerto Rican artists, it came with 71 names. So how did an island so small, 35 by 100 miles, produce so much talent? As native Puerto Rican professor Francis Aparicio puts it, it's just a few miles wide and just a few miles long. Aparicio is the director of Latino and Latina studies at Northwestern University in Illinois, and she has a theory. I think that has to do with the need that we have to articulate our pain as colonial subjects. Unlike other islands in the Caribbean, Puerto Rico has never been truly independent since the arrival of the Spaniards. It went from being a colony of Spain to being an unincorporated territory of the United States. And that history means Puerto Ricans, a people who descended from the Taíno Indians, Spaniards and Africans, have never in modern history been free. Aparicio says music went from being a cultural expression to being a form of subversion. If you think about the drumming that was censored by colonial uh, governments, the drumming itself became a form of communication between among slaves, and and drumming then becomes a very important sonic tradition for resistance. So when we think about percussion in in Caribbean music, in salsa, reggaeton, uh, all of these genres that have been so important to our communities, uh, it's because we can still make that connection. Drums and percussions are prevalent in Ricky Martin's worldwide hit, La Copa de la Vida, The Cup of Life. Also in Jennifer Lopez's most recent song, El Anillo, The Ring. Nanette Vélez says beyond history, authorities in Puerto Rico have been deliberate in the preservation of music as an integral part of life. Vélez leads the Latin Grammy Cultural Foundation, an arm of the Latin Grammys that awards scholarships to young musicians. She says growing up in Puerto Rico truly meant that music was everywhere, all the time, even in the classroom. Always music was a part of the curriculum. Even the elementary school teachers, they had to have some training in voice so they could sing in their classes, like to learn a multiplication tables or a poem. But why do Puerto Rican artists become time and time again global sensations? Vélez says because as colonized peoples, they're culturally akin to both the old and the new worlds, and they speak two of the most spoken languages. As a bilingual artist, they're more quickly to be known internationally. Every major event in the life of Puerto Rico has shaped its peoples and its arts. Hurricane Maria will be no exception. So brace yourself. The next hit that may take the world by storm pardon the expression, is likely to have drums and be sung, as Fray Bartolomé de las Casas said, but the fascinating rhythms of Puerto Rican voices. I'm Joy Diaz for The Taxi Standard.
2: It's almost like rain.
0: This is the Texas Standard, I'm David Brown. When Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban speaks about his team, it's usually about something related to basketball that fans are excited about. He signed a new player, made a trade with another team, perhaps. But that's definitely not what happened when Cuban spoke to ESPN yesterday.
2: You know, first, just an apology to the women involved. Um, the women that, in a couple of cases, were assaulted. And, and not just to them, but to their, their families because this is not something that just is an incident and then it's over. It, it stays with people, it stays with families, and, and I'm just sorry I didn't see it.
0: Cuban is apologizing to his former employees who were victims of sexual assault and harassment. News of the Maverick's toxic workplace culture first broke seven months ago in Sports Illustrated, an independent investigation released yesterday by attorneys from the firms Crutoy Law and Lowenstein Sandler. Confirmed many of the allegations made in that SI article here to tell us more is Tim Cato He is a beat reporter following the Dallas Mavericks for the athletic and online sports publication Tim welcome to Texas Standard Thanks for having me for those who are unfamiliar Can you describe some of the principal findings of this investigation into the Mavericks business
6: side? Yes, yes the uh, the basketball operations was not indicted in this but on the business side there was uh, three specific employees who had Rampant examples of misconduct. Um, one was a uh, team website employee who uh, twice committed uh, domestic violence against partners. One was uh, The second time was actually against a Mavericks co-worker who he was in a relationship at the time, both instances. Uh, he was allowed to retain his job. Uh, another employee had inappropriate material at his desk uh, and viewed it during work hours, as well as being verbally abusive uh, to other co-workers. Uh, third was the longtime CEO of the team, uh, on the business side, uh, who was employed with the team until 2014 and left uh, under unrelated reasons, uh, but he was, uh, you know, guilty of, of rampant uh, sexual harassment to female coworkers, and uh, you know that went entirely unpunished. And more importantly, this was allowed to happen because of the culture where uh, the HR director uh, did not take proper uh, measures to correct them um as well as other supervisors who were in positions to do things about these uh various employees now just to be Uh, just to
0: be clear forgive me for interrupting there you've used some words like guilty and that sort of thing just to be clear this is not a a legal finding what this is is the result of an independent investigation correct
6: yes yes thank you and that that's a that's an important correction so it's not it's not in a court of law but it is an independent investigation that was hired by the mavericks um, and conducted similar to a how a uh, legal investigation may be conducted so all right uh, as far as we, we I, I believe we can in all cases trust these findings
0: uh what about the structure of the organization allowed these problems to persist for so long i note that that mark cuban there in that clip we heard said i'm just sorry i didn't see it why did so few people appear to see it
6: yeah cuban was uh you know despite giving a persona of being a very hands-on owner, uh, in many cases, barely stepped foot in that office. He was much more involved in the basketball side. You know, obviously having the CEO himself of the business side for many years being one of the main perpetrators uh, and and an HR person who then covered it up, that was definitely something that affected to continue on and on.
0: As a consequence, I understand Mark Cuban has agreed to donate $10 million to organizations supporting leadership opportunities for women and to uh, domestic violence victims. Is there a feeling among fans and others that the results fit the uh, fit the allegations or that something else uh, should be uh, forthcoming?
6: For the most part, I have uh, I've seen people mostly saying that he got off easy. Um, I don't think $10 million uh, is a punishment for Mark Cuban, uh, given that he has a net worth, uh, you know, close to $4 billion. Uh, that's a that's a drop in the bucket. It's it's a good thing. It's a, you know, certainly, uh, you know, objectively, it's it's better that that happened than, than it didn't happen. But I, I don't truly find that uh, Cuban was in any way punished. Uh, the only other punishment uh, was sanctions given to the business side where they would have to check in and essentially just do their job correctly. Um, and there'd be some extra scrutiny to make sure they did that. But that's not a punishment. That's just making sure that the team, you know, does what it always was supposed to do.
0: Um, What about the NBA's reaction? Are they likely to sanction and have the Mavericks announced any steps to change things in their internal culture?
6: Uh, you know, I, I think that they have uh, asked that the Mavericks follow some of the recommendations. They have, they have made those, made it clear that, that, uh, that the Mavericks take those steps. And in many cases, the Mavericks have already been taking those steps ever since the you know, Sports Illustrated Report first came out. That said, you know, I, I don't think the NBA has any further punishment or sanctions. I don't think there's anything further coming.
0: We've been talking with Tim Cato. He covers the Dallas Mavericks for The Athletic. Tim, thanks for speaking with us.
6: For sure. Thanks for having me.
0: And you were listening to The Texas Standard. He scours the internet to find out what Texans are talking about. Our social media editor, that is
4: Wells Dunbar. Hi, David. And lots of talk online about that story we just heard about the uh, investigation at the Dallas Mavericks and uncovering a uh, culture of sexual harassment there. DC tweets that Mark Cuban... Watches every penny is front row at every Mavericks game, but didn't give a dang about the culture of his company. Uh, lots of other people sort of echoing what we just heard, uh, questioning the, uh, uh, I guess, penalties brought down on, on Mark Cuban and uh, whether or not they're reflective of... Uh, of the uh, what had transpired, and and uh, his net, uh, considering his net worth, and all those issues right. as well. Right, absolutely,
0: yeah. Uh, and and Cuban himself saying, mm-hmm. uh, it sounded like he was expressing some contrition, but clearly wasn't involved in a lot of the backroom uh, mm-hmm. uh, business uh, side
4: of the operation, even though that's certainly his reputation. Yeah, definitely. Another story we heard about previously that folks are chiming in, this uh, wild one about Cody Wilson. That is the founder of that uh, company that released plans for 3D-printed guns online right, and right. other instructions for manufacturing firearms that evade registration. Well, now he's wanted for sexual assault against right. a minor and apparently is off in Taiwan uh, somewhere. Uh, so lots of people commenting about this story. On Facebook, Vicki Tippins Waters says she's not surprised that the guy who wanted to make sure any and everyone... Could have a poorly made, unregistered, untraceable gun. Makes bad personal decisions. And uh, meanwhile, uh, uh, we kind of a, a very searing comment here about the alleged victim here, mm-hmm, the 16-year-old mm-hmm. girl, right. Michelle Barlow Dickens, says that. They need to look at how child trafficking is done today and notes that someone, because this transpired after they met on a website, Mm -hmm. she says that someone would have had to get her on that website, post her ad, front a credit card number. The affidavit says that when she was dropped off at a fast food restaurant parking lot, the store's video showed her getting into a parked car. Whose car was it? So uh, obviously a a, a very sad situation. situation here, right. that lots of people are continuing to follow and, and raise questions about.
0: Absolutely. Uh, a, a interesting thing uh, about that, too, is that he went to Taiwan, and he was expected to return on a flight, but was not on and that flight. And missed his flight. Yes, right.
4: that's what uh, I think Austin uh, investigators said. Right. Well, on a uh, different, now, folks are still... I guess you could say maybe they're pre-parting a little bit for this Cruz-O'Rourke debate tomorrow. And again, we'll be following that and tweeting about it using our hashtag #TXDecides on Facebook. Jeremy Alvis says that Beto better be ready. This is in Ted's wheelhouse, and Ted does pride himself on uh, Ted Cruz does pride himself on his debate skills. Via Twitter, Ethan Singletary says that he's planning on watching the debate tomorrow night, but he's 31 with two small kids, so he wouldn't have been at a Friday football. Uh, football game anyway, and other folks uh, talking about that and uh, registering their displeasure that it is on a Friday night when there is, you know, high school football and lots of other things going on. But I know, I think it's a safe bet to say that the Texas Standard listeners will probably I think be that may tuned be true. in or watching and, yep. the debate.
0: You know, it's interesting because uh, there might be a little Kennedy-Nixon dynamic going on here in terms of the... Uh, the way that that the candidates appear on the screen. It'll be fascinating to see the reaction uh, in any event. Alas, we're out of time for the big broadcast. We hope you can join us tomorrow on behalf of the entire crew. I'm David Brown, wishing you a terrific
1: Thursday. Philanthropic support comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Wooldridge, Adrian Killam, the George Huntington Family, and the Hatton W. Sumners Foundation.